So this evening, I would like to talk about the place of the heart in this practice. The place of love, compassion, particularly those two qualities. And how we meet the challenge of being human. All the things that how we spoke to yesterday, that the Buddha pointed to of that arise from birth, old age, sickness, change, loss, our minds, our bodies. How do we meet that? Not just with awareness and presence, mindfulness which is essential, but how do we meet that with our full heartfulness? How do we engage the heart in this practice? We need, as this, uh, the analogy that's given is the wings of a bird, that we need both the, the wing of awareness and wisdom and the wing of kindness and love and compassion, that we need both to fly fully uh, on the path. So I want to speak to the place of the heart as we work with some of the difficulties as many of you have been experiencing and talking about in the group meetings So I'd like to start with a story about the quality of compassion. It's about a cab driver. I arrived at the address and honked the horn. After waiting a few minutes, I honked again. Since this was going to be my last ride, I thought about just driving away, but instead I put the car in park and walked up to the door and knocked. Just a minute, answered a frail, elderly voice. And after a long pause, the door opened. A small woman in her 90s stood before me. She was wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned on it, like something out of a 40s movie. By her side was a small nylon suitcase. The apartment looked as if no one had lived in it for years. All the furniture was covered, no clocks on the walls, no knickknacks. And in the corner was a cardboard box filled with photos and glassware. Would you carry my bag to the car, she said. I took the suitcase to the cab, then returned to assist the elderly woman. She took my arm and we walked slowly towards the curb. And she kept thanking me for my kindness. Oh, it's nothing, I told her. I just try to treat my passengers the way I'd like my mother to be treated. When we got in the cab, she gave me an address and then asked, Could you drive me through downtown on the way? Well, it's not the shortest way, I said. Oh, that's fine, she answered. I'm in no hurry. I'm on my way to hospice. I looked in the rearview mirror. Her eyes were glistening. I don't have any family left, she said. The doctor says I don't have long. I quietly reached over and shut the meter off. What route would you like me to take, I said. For the next two hours, we drove through the city. She showed me the building where she had once worked as an elevator operator. We drove through the neighborhood where she she and her husband had lived when they were newlyweds. She had me pull up in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she'd gone dancing as a child. Sometimes she'd ask me to slow in front of a particular building or corner and would sit staring into the darkness. As the first hint of the sun was creasing the horizon, she suddenly said, I'm tired, let's go now. So we drove in silence to the address she'd given me. Two orderlies came out to the cab as soon as we pulled up. They were solicitous and intent, watching her every move. They must have been expecting her. They opened the trunk, took her suitcase to the front door. The woman was already seated in a wheelchair. How much do I owe you, she asked, reaching into her purse. Oh, nothing, I said. But you have to make a living, she answered. Well, there are other passengers, I responded. Almost without thinking, I bent and gave her a hug. She held on to me tightly. It always touches me, this story. You gave an old woman a little moment of joy, she said. Thank you. And she squeezed my hand, and I walked off into the morning light. Behind me, a door shut. It was the sound of the closing of a life. I didn't pick up any more passengers that shift. I drove aimlessly lost in thought. For the rest of that day, I could hardly talk. What if that woman had gotten an angry driver, or one who was impatient to end his shift? What if I'd refused to take the run or had honked once and driven away? On a quick review, I don't think I could have done anything more important in my life. 
So, as we sit here and walk and be with ourselves and each other and our practice, and we encounter often quite a lot of difficulty, challenge, just looking at our mind, how crazy our mind can be, the suffering, the pain, the aches of the body, the memories of regret and loss and sadness, the issues and challenges we bring into here from our lives. And the, 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 the practice, the, the moment is inviting us and asking of us, how do we meet this? Yeah. Life, ourselves, relationships, loss, calling forth these qualities of the heart. And so we're not just cultivating awareness and clarity, we're cultivating uh, kindness, cultivating love, cultivating compassion, cultivating joy, a joyful heart. And these qualities the Buddha spoke to as we, as, as we walk the, the, the Eightfold Path, as we understand what causes suffering, as we free ourselves from our entanglements and reactivities, What's left isn't a void, what's left is it allows more room for the heart to be full, to be present, to be engaged, to be connected. And the qualities of kindness and care and connection and compassion are much more available as we do this practice. Mindfulness, as is now also being researched a lot, is the, is the building block for empathy. It's the foundation of compassion. We can't really have a relational understanding of somebody until we understand what's happening here. Until we can be fully with what's here, we can't fully engage with another human being. So you're doing essential work, which is why everybody else around you will thank you for being here. (laughs) Because it makes you a more beautiful human being. You're already beautiful and it it just, it releases the heart. It, it, It releases the the, the entanglements that, that really uh, bind us in a way that's not so healthy for ourselves and for others. So we've had, uh, some of you have been in one group and some of you have been in two groups. And it's interesting just to listen to the stories. Yeah, you look around and, and people look, they're like they're calm and they're meditating, they look healthy and strong. And, and then you scrape a little below, below the surface and, and you see there's someone struggling with chronic pain, someone's dealing with anxiety, someone with depression, someone with just not being able to be present, how difficult that is, someone's dealing with a loss, a bereavement. And so we see that there's a lot of uh, the humanity, the, the, the reality of humanity just right here. And we see that in ourselves if we look honestly. I'm often amazed uh, as I'm teaching and I get to hear these stories, just how much suffering there is. You know, we, we, we read the, the back of the interview sheet which has some information about history, psychological history, emotional history, and, uh, and it's, 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 uh, it's intense to, 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 to read um, how much suffering each one of us carries. There's a phrase that I often reflect on, it goes like this, it goes, um, uh, be kind to every person you meet because each person has been asked to carry a great burden. And you don't get through this life without having a burden or two or five. Yeah. And so it's, 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 it's good to remember that when, someone, when we're getting annoyed because someone's sniffling or slamming the door or snoring or whatever it is, to remember, oh, that person's like me, suffering, tender, vulnerable. Uh, and can I find that commonality rather than going more easily to what separates us or what, what, you know, what's easy to judge. I remember listening to this story. Uh, this story got quite a bit of attention locally. Um, I first heard it uh, from Michael Franti, who's a, a singer-songwriter here. And the story goes like this. Within, it's about a local woman, Tika. Within the span of one month, Tika and her husband, David, had become parents to a beautiful baby boy. Then, uh, soon after, they lost their home to foreclosure. Then suddenly, Tika was diagnosed with breast cancer. And uh, she was due to have a double mastectomy. They took a vacation to Hawaii to get some relief. And on the Hawaii, her husband, David, was swept away uh, by a rogue wave and never seen again. 
And I just thought, just the intensity of that one woman's pain and the child and the loss. And, and that story could be repeated a million times if we scratch below the surface and we ask people the burdens that they're carrying. So the, we're asked in our lives and in our practice, how do we meet this? How can we show up with tenderness, with kindness for our own difficulties and struggles, for the struggles of our loved ones, for the pain in the world? You know, what's, what's the appropriate response? And so often the appropriate response is a heartful response. You know, we can analyze it, we can intellectualize it, but what's, what's being called for is this, yeah, that, ne- that often, for many of us, uh, requires some cultivation, because for there's many reasons why the heart has become numb or shut down or just become a little more inaccessible. So I want to read a story which th- this talk can tend to have a, little, a lot of gravity to it, but there's also um, an, an importance to holding our suffering with lightness, with some, with some ease, with some tenderness. So this is a story uh, that speaks to that a little bit from a more humorous vantage point. So a man's in a, in a supermarket, he's observing this woman in a grocery store and with a little young girl in uh, her shopping cart, and they're going down uh, the aisle, and uh, they first come to the cookie aisle, and the little girl starts to whine and fuss because she's not going to be able to get a cookie, and the, mother, and the mother says quietly, now, Monica, we just have half the aisles to go through. Don't be upset. It won't be long. And then they went to the candy aisle, and of course the girl gets excited, and when she heard she wasn't getting any candy, gets really frustrated, has a little tantrum. And again, the mother says, there, Monica, don't cry, only two more aisles to go, then we'll check out. And then when they get to the checkout stand, once again, the girl has a little tantrum, because she discovers she's not going to be able to have any bubble gum. And the mother says, Monica will be through this checkout stand in five minutes, and then you can go home and have a nice nap. The man followed them out of the, to the parking lot because he was quite impressed by how steady and patient uh, uh, he'd been with, this woman had been with her daughter. And he said, I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he began. Whereupon the mother said, what do you mean? My little girl's name is Tammy. I'm Monica. So sometimes we, that's how we need to talk to ourselves. There, there. There's only 15 more meditations to go. Just breathe. Only 29 hours or whatever it is. So it's, you know, what I love about that story, and it's, it's a funny story, is it's, she's befriending herself. You know, there's the practice of metta, of love, of compassion. We're befriending ourselves. We're becoming our own ally. Yeah, rather than our adversary, rather than our enemy, or our body is our enemy. Yeah, and that's what I, really the essence of this talk is how do we befriend ourselves? How do we become our best friend? And it's often so much easier for many of us, if not all of us, to be kind and caring and attentive. You know, for loved ones in distress, if a friend of us calls us up and says, you know, I'm just, I'm my, my brother's dying, or I just lost my job, or I'm feeling incredibly hopeless, you know, we're right there. It's, it's, it's relatively easy at times to comfort. But when it's ourselves, we're, we're, we're harsh, we're judgmental. I, mean, we, I should be over this by now. I should be more together. Look at my, everybody, else, everybody else here. And I hear this on the retreat. Everybody else looks really together, but I'm the one who's just fumbling around and I'm the only one who's miserable and everyone looks so happy and Buddha-like. And <laughs> now we just add, we just add these layers of suffering that are just excruciating. So how to, how to shift that from, from harshness to, to being kind, to, to acknowledging, just like we would with a friend, oh, yeah, this is painful, the pain in my knees, it sucks, it sucks to have lower back pain, it sucks to have a mind that seems completely untrainable, completely out of control. Yeah. So, So practice is, you know, so, so as, and I, this is how I, I understand mindfulness practice these days. It's always asking us, how can I meet this? How do I meet this? Can I meet this with a kind attention? 
Can I meet this with understanding? The mindfulness informs the understanding which allows the heart to be more engaged. So in each moment, uh, we're, we're given the invitation, whether it's our back pain or a feeling of sadness or feeling lonely in amidst 92 people or feeling despair about a relationship or not having a relationship. Which either side of the relationship you're in is, you know, we can have as much suffering as you know. Doesn't necess- one doesn't necessarily <laughs> solve the problem. So the, the poet Hafez puts it this way. He says, um, uh, you have all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. Do not mix them. <laughs> so we're sitting here. We have a little bit of tiredness. We're a little hungry because it's just before tea. And our concentration is haywire. And our knee starts hurting. Right? And then when we look over around, everyone's looking really still. And we start feeling envious. And then we start feeling self-disparaging. And we put those ingredients together and then we feel like crap. Right? And then he says, well, you have all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. What are those ingredients? Presence, acceptance, kindness, patience, forgiveness. Right? Mix those and what happens? We start to feel it's tolerable, it's bearable, I can do this. I can, I can, I can hold this difficulty. So I want to read a poem that I wrote that speaks to this um, piece of practice. It's called Duty. Your only duty is not to run, even if the hole of loss burns deep in your belly, and on waking you feel the dread of walking into the day stripped bare. You can always pretend, try putting a face other than your own, But that's a game that's never worked and only burns a deeper hole inside the pocket of longing and makes the shell you've chosen to live in more hollow. But there are times when there's no choice but to turn towards where you are, to touch the empty places inside you spent a lifetime running from with delicate hands of love, the way the evening fog envelops the solitary tree without flinching, pressing into and loving every gnarled crevice, every twisted branch, even the forgotten needles fall into the ground. This, perhaps, is the first step that begins the slow journey of completeness, keeps inviting you deeper into the roots of yourself, claiming your place that has been waiting, that is right here. So this is, for me, the pivotal point. It's the turning towards, the leaning into, when we spoke, I answered a question the other day about why be with suffering? Well, when we turn towards it with an open, kind attention, it allows the door of compassion to open, to be, to be, uh, it's like the fanning the embers of the heart. And as we practice turning towards ourselves, then of course, uh, as we meet other people in other situations, we have more capacity because we, we've trained, we've practiced. That's why we call this practice. It's never perfect, but it's practice. I notice in my own practice, I work individually with, with people, counseling and coaching and whatnot, Dharma students. And I see that because of the work that I've done over the years, and especially the really deep, dark, painful places that I've had to navigate and hang out with, that it brings a tremendous amount of courage. Like I'm not afraid to be with whatever somebody brings up because I feel like I've gone to the most difficult, painful, desperate places in myself. And that's a tremendous gift that we can give to each other when, we've, when we have that confidence to say, yes, I can go with you anywhere because I know I've gone everywhere and it's okay. It's okay if we can be there with a kind heart. Suzuki Roshi, who is a wonderful Zen teacher, put it this way. He says, You don't really know what it means to sit in meditation till there's some great difficulty in your life. Not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love. And then there you are, tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital, and there's nothing you can do. 
And finally you take a seat in the midst of your fears and sorrows and thoughts and worries and you just sit in the middle of it all. And that's the moment you begin to understand the power of your practice. So we sit here to be with, you know, it's, it's practice and it's training. It's also the real performance. We're being with, with life happening as it's unfolding. And it's serving us for whatever we, we encounter uh, in our lives. I was teaching a course here uh, not so long ago and a woman reported that she, the, she, the motivation for coming was uh, her husband had just died. A tremendous amount of grief and sorrow. And, but she, she was very courageous and she said, I just wanted to sit with it. I wanted to come to a space where there was no distraction and I could just sit right in the middle of it, which is tremendously brave. And at the end of the, the period of practice, she said, what, what's come out of this time of grieving and really allowing it is I just want to be kind. I just want to be a kind human being. And what a beautiful thing to arise out of going into the depths of sorrow. Another person I work with, a woman who um, had suffered from uh, very traumatic sex abuse as a young girl, <clears throat> and she was now <clears throat> at least in her 50s, if not older, and she carried shame and guilt about that and a lot of blame, a lot of self-blame for that happening, which is often the case with uh, survivors. Um, and so we did work around her holding the pain, like really opening to the pain of that and meeting the pain of that young part of her that was violated. Um, and over the course of doing that, of really sitting in the middle of that pain, she began to feel a sense of, I'm not responsible, I'm not to blame. This is, this is complete uh, exploitation, perpetration. And she felt a sense of, she befriended that young, wounded part of her, became an ally of that, and that shame and the guilt dropped. The pain didn't go away, obviously. But the sense of being uh, not self-abandoning was such, a, was such a transformation. So, so we work, we meet these difficult places in ourselves and they, they, they are our manure for Bodhi. They are the places that we transform over time. It doesn't happen overnight. My experience is change is very slow. For the mind, it's glacial. <laughs> for the heart, it's slow. Um, you know, sometimes we can have a tr- uh, an insight and it can, it can really shift things, but generally the integration of those experiences is slow and the heart moves slowly, but slowly but surely. And, and, and if we look, if we apply ourselves to this practice, we can see how things change and how what seemed like unbearable and uh, inconceivable to be able to even go into or feel or be with actually becomes the place that we most uh, feel most transformed, most healed, most, uh, sometimes most powerful. So there's a poem I like to share that speaks to this by a, a poet called Rashani of going into the difficult places and what comes out of that. There's a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable, a sorrow beyond, beyond all grief which leads to joy, and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole. So at times it does feel like our heart's going to break with our own pain, with the pain of the world. And often when we allow the grief and the sadness and the loss, we actually see what incredible tenacity the heart has. And it does. You look at the trauma that children go through and the tremendous resilience we have to, to, to bear, to weather storms and tragedy. And so I think what practice does, it allows us to take refuge in this part of ourselves. That we, that we have this fortitude and strength. And as we learn how to meet it and greet it 
and allow it, and it moves through, we we get we gain we get we get stronger. So, what exactly is compassion? What is this movement of the heart? The Buddha calls it in a very beautiful poetic way. He says it's the quivering of the heart. It's the it's the movement of the heart in response to the pain of ourselves or another. Yeah, it's an act. We feel compassion. We feel the suffering. We, it's almost like we take the suffering of someone into us. Not literally. But we, you know, like so when someone's, we're sitting here and somebody's crying in the hall, we feel a resonance. So the first quality, it's an, it's a, an aspect of it is it's, it's empathic. We feel we resonate with the suffering because you know, we know that in ourselves. So often we'll feel the same kind of teariness. Or we'll be sitting with someone and we suddenly feel sad because we're picking up on the sadness with this person or in the room. So I like to um, quote our president on the theme of empathy. I don't usually quote presidents in my Dharma talks, so I get a kick out of quoting this one. You know there's a lot of talk in this country about the federal deficit. I think we should talk more about our empathy deficit, the ability to put ourselves in someone else's shoes to see the world through the eyes of those who are different from us, the child who's hungry, the steel worker who's been laid off, the family who lost the entire life savings they built together when the storm came to town, When you think like this, when you choose to broaden your ambit of concern and empathize with the plight of others, whether they are close friends or distant strangers, it becomes harder not to act, harder not to help. So speaking to the the, the empathy and the compassion being the building block for action, which I'll talk a little about later. So the compassion is the feeling of concern, it's the feeling of care when you see you know, the turkeys wandering through, you know, and, you know, they're always tracking for predators because there's plenty of predators around there. We have foxes, they have mountain lions, there's uh, bobcats, um, and then there's humans. <laughs> um, and you see that there's incredible vulnerability. You know, we have birds here who nest, we have swallows who come and nest up above the bathrooms, and they, always, and they, and they raise their young, and there's usually like three or four little quivering little Swallowed baby swallows, and you can't help but feel this incredible vulnerable vulnerability and tenderness, and you just want to scoop them up and take care of them. Like I came up one night, it was about midnight, and uh, the great horned owl was sitting on the roof and then swooping around, checking out the nest, and the, and the parents were just freaking out. And then just was like, no. <laughs> you know, that's, that's compassion. It's just, we, we, the heart wants life to be well. It wants life to be safe and protected, even though at some point one of those beings has to eat the other being. For, for the, you know, if I want the great horned owl to live, that has to eat something. You know, it can eat tofu, but it's not going to last very long. You know, so... So, but, but the heart still wants both to be happy. You know, it's, it's, the, 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 the love of the heart is paradoxical. We want all life to be well, even though half of life is eating the other half. And it still wants both to be well. So it's the feeling of concern, the feeling of care, the feeling of, of just the natural wanting to reach out, you know, to, 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 you know, to touch, put a hand, to hug, to call, to when, when, we, when we see someone's in distress. You know, see someone falls over and we bend over. We're already there lifting them up. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's in us. There's a great story, somewhat of a silly story, but it's a fun story nonetheless of uh, a psychologist um, uh, ran this competition to find the most caring child. Um, it's sort of an odd thing because I think all children are caring in, in heart. But anyhow, he ran this contest and the winner was this four-year-old boy. And the, the, the story that... that uh, won him the competition was that, um, that he was uh, walking down the road uh, out of his house with his mom and the next door neighbor who was sitting on the porch, an old, old elderly gentleman uh, was sitting on, on the rocking chair on the porch uh, who just lost his, his lifelong uh, spouse and so was dealing with a lot of grief and uh, the little boy shook uh, free of his mother's 
hand and ran up the garden path and crawled himself up onto this man's lap and sat there for a while and the mother just waited patiently by the, the, the road um, and then he, the little boy eventually came back and the mom said, what did you do? And uh, oh, he said, oh, nothing. I just helped him cry. I just helped him cry. So he didn't say anything, he didn't do anything. He just, you know, just, it was just an instinctual knowing. Maybe he was poking him, I don't know. But <laughs> <laughs> that could be true also. Um, sometimes we feel compassion as a sadness. We hear about the loss of you know, an endangered species. Or we hear about the whales being affected by naval sonar. Or we hear about the killing of dolphins in Japan. Or whatever it is, something that's much bigger than, than any particular individual action that we might be able to do to save particularly, say, the loss of species. And there's just a tremendous sadness. And the heart feels that. It feels the loss of that, the loss of beauty and diversity and complexity, the loss of languages that are happening. So sadness can be a response of the heart. Um, and it's also an active movement. Compassion is a verb. It's not just a feeling, but it's, it's, it's that which inspires us. It moves us to get up off our seat, to engage in some action, to form a campaign, to start a grassroots organization, to get involved in something, uh, to raise money, to give money. Um, I was at a dinner party not so long ago and uh, I met a a friend of my, a friend of a friend was there and she was talking about her time, uh, how she started her organization. She runs this organization called Lulan and she was a designer and she was traveling in... um, I think it was Cambodia or Vietnam. I think it was Cambodia. And uh, she was sitting in a bar having a drink after work and she'd overheard these two men who were engaged in sex trafficking of a young girl. And she was outraged and she went up to them and she tried to engage, tried to intercept this arrangement that they were trying to work out. And she failed and she felt really a lot of despair. So she decided to put her design skills to work to help the young girls who were being sold into trafficking, sex trafficking. And she started an organization that uh, developed these local handicraft, um, I forget the name, the the hand industries, uh, designing clothes and scarves and whatnot, and then selling uh, them in the West. And it it became very successful. She was a very good business person and now has projects in, in many, many countries all over the world, in, 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 now in South America and Southeast Asia and Africa, and um, all inspired by this feeling of feeling the intense suffering um, of these girls and the families. And then she, she went back at some point to this village, and one of the, one of the, the parents, the, one of the fathers came up to her and says, and, and so what she does, is, so the girls work in these industries that then provide money so they can go to school, so they can get an education and get out of that whole vicious cycle of poverty and trafficking. And um, one of the parents, one of the fathers came up to her and said, you know, we're worried, I'm worried about, I'm worried about the situation because both my boy and, my, and the, the girl are going, my girl is going to school, but my little girl is doing better than my boy which was a little shocking to him. And, 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 and my friend said, naive, pretending to be naive, she said, well, I don't know, let, let's look into that. Why don't you ask your friends what's happening, see if it's happening to their children, and we'll come back in six months and talk about it. And so he canvassed all his friends, and, and when she came back, uh, uh, he said, everybody else is finding also that the girls are doing much better than the boys. They're applying themselves, they're more dedicated, they're brighter. Um, and she's and she's like, oh, really? That's interesting. That's that's you know, what do you think about that? And she just left it with with him. And over time, what was what what began to happen in the village was the realization um, that the girls had economic value as well as inherent value, and that they they saw what what the education could provide for their children and how these children could be valuable. Uh, for their families and not to be sold into trafficking. And so it changed the whole system and, and the way girls and women were viewed. Um, so just one story of millions of, 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 the, of how compassion moves in us. And there's a wonderful book by Paul Hawken, Blessed Unrest, and he chronicles um, the growth of, non, of NGOs and nonprofits that are, that are helping to bring uh, relief suffering in the world in, in all the different ways that they, that happens. And 
there's now a couple of million nonprofits throughout the world. If you, if any, there's a great movie that, that he developed that ha- it's like a, um, you know, the credits at the end of a movie. And if you, and if, if each nonprofit doing work to relieve suffering in the world was, was uh, rolling like it would at the end of a movie, it would take something like 12 years to list all of those. Something like something amazing. So, so the, the compassion moves us, it moves, it moves us to act, it, it moves in many different ways. Um, one of the things that arises out of it is great wisdom. You know, one of the things that arises out of our suffering when we meet it is we see the commonality. We see, oh, this is the human experience. I'm not alone in this. It's what actually unites us. It's what binds us so often is the understanding that my suffering is not my suffering. It's just suffering. When the Buddha talked about there is dukkha, there is unsatisfactoriness, there is aging, there is sickness, there is decay, there is loss, they're universal experiences. And when we understand that, it can help one feeling the sense, uh, mitigate the sense I'm doing something wrong, that there's a problem. How often do we feel that when we're suffering we've done something wrong? Rather than it's just the human experience. Loss, change, instability, fragility, vulnerability, it's part of being human. And it's what also allows us to connect with each other and take care of each other because we're in the same boat. We're in the same sinking ship. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) It's a one-way street, (laughs) I'm afraid to say. (laughs) So, starting with ourselves, compassion, self-compassion. Kristen Neff, a wonderful psychologist and meditator in this tradition, wrote a beautiful book about self-compassion, about the importance of meeting, starting with ourselves, meeting our suffering, understanding its, its, its universality, uh, accepting it with kindness rather than judgment. And some of you might be thinking, well, I know about this thing. I don't know if I can do this. It sounds too distant, too remote, too grandiose. I'm actually not crazy about the word compassion because whenever I hear it, it sounds grandiose. But it's just caring. It's, it's simple. It's, 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 it's kindness. It's, it's, it's empathy. It's warmth. It's the way you look after yourself and each other. There's a, a back to the great Dharma teacher, Gary Larson. So um, uh, we're in hell and we're with Satan and he's, Satan's coming out of his fiery dens and he's shouting, Mom, no, stop, no, none of that. And un- underneath the caption, it, the cartoon, it says, um, uh, Satan, despite his repeated efforts, Satan could never dissuade his mother from offering cookies and milk to the accursed. <laughs> and she's there with a little um, tray with cookies and milk. And, and he's like, no, none of that nice stuff. <laughs> she's got a little pinny on, you know, a tail and... Um, you know, it's, it's innate within us. You know, there's a story from Alan Wallace. He, he creates this, this scenario. You're walking down the street and you've got your bag of groceries and someone bumps into you from behind. You drop your groceries and you say spill and your eggs break and your tomatoes spill out and you're just about to turn and bite the person's head off. And you notice they're blind and they're also spilt their groceries and you shift from being self-centered and absorbed and reactive to, oh, shit, how are you? Can I help you? We're in this together. Yeah. So it's in us, it's, with, it's, it's innate. There's a lovely poem from, um, do I have it? I might not have it. No, I do have it. Um, uh, Mary Oliver, it's called in praise, of, in praise of Craziness of a Certain Kind. On cold evenings, my grandmother with ownership of only half her mind, the other half having flown back to Bohemia, spread newspapers over the porch floor. So she said, the garden ants could crawl beneath as under a blanket and keep warm. And what shall I wish for, for myself, but being so struck by the lightning of years, to be like her with what is left, that loving. To be with what is left. So as you can see, we, we are the habits, we are the consequence of our actions. We are what we've been practicing the last 20, 30, 40 years is what we become here and what we become in the future is partly what we practice here. And as we practice presence, kindness, care, compassion, love, 
what happens over time, that grows. The Buddha said whatever we frequently dwell and ponder upon, that becomes the inclination of our hearts. So we want to become a more loving person, be love, express that. And, uh, what's his name? D.H. Lawrence wrote um, uh, something, he wrote a lot. Um, Well, the last line of this quote is, uh, only the loving find love and they never have to seek for it. Only the loving find love and they never have to seek for it. So, So just notice where you are right now. Noticing as you're listening and metabolizing this. Noticing, probably reflecting on your own difficult struggles and challenges and how you may meet those or not meet those. And maybe just take a moment to, 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 to hold a reflection or possibility. Well, how, how would it be possible for me to turn towards uh, th- what's happening right here, to the, the, the struggles that I'm feeling right here, whether it's just feeling challenged by the concentration or feeling exhausted or feeling restless or feeling lonely or feeling sad, how would it be for me to turn towards that with, with some warmth, with some friendliness as I would to a friend? How could I turn towards uh, my restlessness or my anxiety. Yeah, so several people talked about anxiety today. I struggled a lot with anxiety last year. Arose as things do sometimes out of the blue. You think you've, you know, you do a lot of work on something and you think, great, finish with that. Thank you very much. Next. <laughs> and then 12 years later, boom, comes out of the blue. Shit. <laughs> and and we're, we're, asked, we're asked again, well, you met it, you we worked with it then. Now, how are you meeting it now? Oh no, not this again. <laughs> and so I did my own work with anxiety and it, and it pervaded for several months, as it often does. Sometimes it's years, decades for some of us. And uh, as some people were saying today, you know, I'm working with it, I'm feeling it, noticing it, and it's not going away. I try to meditate it away. I try to meter it away. <laughs> doesn't work. It stays around. So often what, all we're left with is how we're holding ourselves with it. Yeah, how are we befriending ourselves with it? Can we soften into it and, and, and hold a kind of a kind, spacious container, knowing that it, it, it's, it may pervade for a while? And I, what I found is the more I softened into my body, into my experience, it was still unpleasant, but it was much more bearable. The more I fought it, the more I hated it, the more I resented it, the more I pushed it away, the more I tried to avoid it. It didn't resolve it. It just, it just created antagonism and I was at war with myself. And so I find this practice of, you know, we teach these practices somewhat separately. So there are compassion practices and meta practices and mindfulness practices and all kinds of different other cultivation practices. Really, in essence, they're not separate practices. So for me, Mindfulness practice at this point is very imbued with kindness and metta. So when things come up, so I talk about cultivating a kind attention. So when anxiety comes up, there's a, for myself, there's a softening into the body. Oh, and this. Can I meet this with, with kindness? Oh, this is suffering. When we acknowledge the suffering, really important aspect of compassion, when we acknowledge it, oh, this is suffering, this is difficult, this is painful, this is hard to bear, that acknowledgement is often what allows the, the heart to move, to respond. It may sound very simplistic, but it's, it's true. When we acknowledge, oh, this is hard. It's hard to be me. Anybody have that experience? <laughs> it's hard to be me. It's hard to be human. It's hard to be on retreat. Hard to sit with myself. Anybody not have a hard time sitting with themselves at times? Yeah, it's hard to sit with yourself. Alone, naked, just no distraction. Yeah, so the more we can sit, more we can hold ourselves, that experience with kindness, it's, it's so much more bearable. You know, the definition of dukkha is difficult to bear. When we bring this attitude of kindness, it's not so difficult to bear. We can even dissolve, dissolve the difficult to bear. It may still be difficult, 
but it's also manageable. It's not, we're, not, we're not in contention. And just to take a moment to reflect on, well, if this is such a beautiful quality, how come I'm not just hanging out there all the time? You know? The reason we don't hang out there is because we have attitudes or stories or ideas about suffering. We think we need to keep it at, at arm's length. Sometimes there's a fear, well, if I let this suffering in, if I really felt how much I was lonely, I would drown. If I let my suffer, my, the suffering of my friend in, I'd be overwhelmed. So I have to keep them at bay. But we underestimate our, our own capacity and power. And it's why also in the practice we're teaching you about learning to be skillful with your attention. At times, be with the pain, chronic pain, physical pain, sadness, loss. At times when it's too much, you learn how to balance, to resource, to come back to something neutral so you don't get overwhelmed. So you, learn, you realize, oh, I have... I have power in this, in this dynamic. That I can navigate, I can titrate the extent of the difficulty I'm with so I can learn to navigate anything. If it's too much, I back off. When, it's, when I'm feeling strong and resourced, I can go in. Yeah, so we, we develop freedom in our, in our capacity. Very liberating quality to develop. And one of the, one of the near enemies of, of compassion traditionally is this quality called, uh, it's, it's, it's pity, which is where we keep things at bay, where we see keeping ourselves separate from our pain or others' pain. Yes, and notice if you're doing, if, this, if you're keeping separation, or you're actually allowing it in, allowing it to metabolize. And lastly, the, one of the things that most interferes with compassion is, is, is our own cruelty which is the far enemy of, of compassion, which is often manifest in the form of judgment, criticism, uh, and rejection. Yeah. And so to be really vigilant of this quality, this, this aspect of the mind that's harsh with ourselves. You know, so often I hear, you know, I'm grieving, I'm grieving a loss of, of, of a dear friend or a loved one, um, and it was, it was six months ago, and I feel like I should be over it. I feel like I should resolve it. I feel like hopeless, I'm still in that. You know, and so we add suffering onto suffering. The Buddha called this the second dot, the second hour. We're in pain, and then we add suffering onto it. Yeah, so to watch the way that we judge ourselves and criticize ourselves. The metta is as a wonderful antidote to the critic. Instead of saying, you're worthless, your meditation sucks, you're never going to get anywhere, you're not good enough, you'll never find love. Oh, and may I be happy. <laughs> but you're really a piece of... You know, worthless nothing. Thank you, and may I be peaceful. Yeah, but you're really a loser. Thank you, may I be well. And may you be happy, too. And, you know, I I say to people, after every judgment, after every disparaging remark, add a metaphrase, which might be 500 phrases a day for some of us. So so we're we're creating positive neural pathways uh, with the meta practice, the compassion phrases are similar to the meta phrases. They are: "May I be free from suffering? May I be free from pain and suffering? May I hold my suffering with ease? May I hold myself kindly in this difficult time?" Um, or whatever variation of that. So sometimes when we're doing the meta practice and we're in tremendous grief or sadness, shift the phrases to compassion. If we're wishing meta for a friend or a loved one who's in great distress and difficulty. And it doesn't make sense to wish them happy because you know they're dealing with chronic terminal illness. May you be free of suffering. May you hold your suffering with ease. Yeah, so we can use the metaphrase, the compassion phrases like metaphrases.
So I'd like to close with a, uh, a piece from Martin Luther King, Dr. King, um, who uh, is a wonderful example uh, of someone who took compassion to really to its, its potential uh, that we, we extend this, this quality from our own suffering, the suffering of our loved ones, to really the suffering at large and was a great inspiration for that. And I want to read the piece that um, uh, this is taken from an interview uh, when he was asked quite shortly before his assassination about what he'd like to be remembered for um, at his funeral. And he said, rather than his awards and where he went to school and people, uh, and people he was acquainted with, people should talk about how he fought peacefully for justice. I'd like somebody to mention that, that the day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for you to say that Martin Luther, Martin Luther King tried to love somebody. I want you to say that I tried to be right on the war question. I want you to be able to say that I did, I did try to feed the hungry, that I did try in my life to clothe those who were in naked, that I did try to, in my life to visit those who were in prison. And I want you to say that I tried to love and serve humanity. And I want you to say I was a drum major, a drum major for justice, for peace, for righteousness, and all of the other shallow things shall not matter. So let's sit for a moment. There's a practice in the tradition often associated with concentration practice, but we can use it at other times. It's a practice of resolves or practice of intention. And sometimes it's helpful to to pose this intention for ourselves. And so I invite you to practice this. And and it's done very occasionally. You can do it now or whenever feels appropriate. And the intention around compassion would be, may the deepest compassion arise in my practice. May the deepest compassion arise in my practice. And it may be for you for a specific thing, for yourself, for a person. You offer the resolve and then you let it go. But we're just calling forth, may the deepest compassion arise for myself, for my practice, for the world. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.